welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, which is a podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. I'm Dr. Christian Van Doren, a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Gill, also a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. We want this podcast to be a high-yield, audible study guide. Today, we will be talking about shoulder pathology. Special thanks to Dr. Ben Washburn at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Annie Seavey from the University of Missouri for reviewing this episode. Disclaimer, the AAP board review series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. We'll begin today's podcast with a case. Christian, let's dive in. A 22-year-old collegiate athlete is heading home after a hard day of practice. En route, his motorcycle is T-boned by an oncoming vehicle. He falls to the pavement with rapid lateral acceleration and deceleration of his head. He's able to stand up after the accident and fortunately doesn't appear to have sustained any significant injuries. He walks the rest of the way home. Later on, he notices left shoulder pain and difficulty shrugging his shoulder, along with a sense of instability in the shoulder. During training the next day, he finds it is difficult to lift weights, especially with pressing movements. He asks a fellow athlete to watch him do a push-up on the wall, and his friend notes that his left shoulder blade protrudes backwards. What do you think is going on with this athlete? The first thing that comes to mind is lateral scapular weighing. This occurs when there is injury to either the lung thoracic nerve and or cranial nerve 11, the accessory nerve. I'm focused on this with your specific physical exam finding of the left shoulder blade protruding during a wall push-up or scapular weighing. However, I would consider a broader differential because there are other muscle groups that assist with scapular and shoulder motion that need to be considered. The levator scapula muscle attaches to the medial border of the scapula. However, it performs scapular elevation, and this patient is experiencing a lateral medial motion abnormality, and the levator muscle innervation is from the dorsal scapular nerve. A muscle that attaches medially to the scapula is important to know are the rhomboid major and minor muscles. These assist with medial motion of the scapula, and their lack of function could certainly present in a similar fashion with poor scapular motion along the thorax but their innervation stems from the dorsal scapular nerve, just like the previously mentioned muscle. Less likely on my differential includes the sternocleidomastoid muscle, strictly because it receives innervation by the accessory nerve, but its function is to perform rotation and flexion of the head. Not to say this muscle could not be weak after the accident that injured the cranial nerve 11 or accessory nerve, but its location of function doesn't include the scapula. Very good. I like that you were thinking about multiple muscles that attach to the scapula. Right off the bat, you consider long thoracic nerve or cranial nerve 11. How do injuries to these nerves affect scapular motion? The long thoracic nerve innervates the serratus anterior, and the cranial nerve 11 innervates the trapezius muscles. When either or both are injured, arm elevation above the head will be difficult, and restraint of the scapula against the thoracic cage will be affected. That makes sense. What would be an easy way for me to remember the nerves and muscles involved? For the trapezius, I like to imagine drawing a one down a person's neck and back on each side of their spine, and together they make the number 11 along the trapezius muscles. With the serratus anterior, I know that it assists in raising the arms above the head, so I like to remember C567, raise your arms to heaven, to remember the innervation levels. 
Also, it's a long way to the top is something else I like to say to remember the long thoracic nerve is involved. Great mnemonics. Tell me more about pathophysiology and recovery in this presentation. An injury to the posterior triangle of the neck could injure the accessory nerve or traction to the superior shoulder could harm the long thoracic nerve. In the case, the patient experienced a rapid lateral motion injury that would put stress on those structures, ultimately causing the shoulder instability, possibly pain and scapular weaning. Imaging like MRI or radiography aren't particularly useful in assisting in diagnoses. An EMG can help isolate the muscle or nerve injury involved. A simple test such as doing a push-up position on the wall, like mentioned in the case, can demonstrate a posterior protruding scapula. Now, if the medial aspect is worse on protrusion, it's usually more indicative of a long thoracic nerve slash serratus anterior injury versus a more lateral protrusion. Lateral protrusion usually indicates a cranial nerve 11 injury, which involves the trapezius muscles. Management usually entails scapular stabilization rehab. For muscular avulsions, the serratus anterior can have surgical fixation to its original location, or a pectoralis major muscle transfer can be performed. But if there's extensive cranial nerve 11 injury, the Eden-Lang transfer utilizes the levator scapula and rhomboids to reconstruct the injured trapezius. Lastly, inability to elevate the arm above the head is usually a poor sign for future healing and function. That was a great review of scapular winging. Let's switch gears and talk about shoulder fractures. Firstly, let's begin with humeral fracture. That sounds great. I'd like to give you a case as well. Take it away. A 77-year-old female is outside walking her dog when she becomes tangled in the leash. She unfortunately loses her balance and falls to the concrete sidewalk, landing on her right arm. She immediately has severe pain in her shoulder region, and when she attempts to stand up, she can't raise her arm due to weakness. EMS is called, and she's taken to the local emergency department. What do you think happened with this patient? The acute presentation associated with trauma brings two major concerns to mind. Fracture, such as from the humerus or clavicle, and shoulder dislocation. Differential also includes shoulder separation and nerve injuries involving the root, plexus, or axillary nerve itself. Great job. In the emergency department, AP internal and external views, Grashi scapular lateral Y, and Velpu auxiliary radiographs are obtained. There is an abducted bone fragment from the humeral head. What are the typical demographics of humeral fractures? Demographically, humeral fractures occur often in the elderly with a ratio of 2 to 1 for female to male. With this patient being an elderly female, there is also increased risk of osteoporosis or osteopenia contributing to likelihood of fracture with her fall. Other risk factors include diabetes and epilepsy. I would also add that the noted abducted bone fragment is likely from the supraspinatus contracting on the proximal bone fragment. Do you know what type of fracture this would be classified as and how many sections there are to the classification? That's a great question. A common classification system for proximal humeral fractures is NEAR. You may remember the NEAR test for subacromial impingement. The fracture classification system divides the proximal humerus into four parts, the greater tuberosity, lesser tuberosity, humeral head, and humeral shaft. Class 1, 2, 3, and 4 are named for the number of displaced parts for the fracture, respectively. 
A fragment is considered separated if it is displaced more than one centimeter or has at least 45 degrees of angulation. The greater tuberosity is considered displaced at five millimeters. Therefore, one part fractures have no bone displacement and alignment is normal in the humerus. Two part fracture has with displacement of either the greater or lesser tuberosity, surgical neck or anatomical neck, causing two main bony parts. Three part fractures, two fragments are displaced. Four part, all fragments are displaced and out of alignment in relation to each other. Sometimes I forget how many parts are involved. I like to think of it like this. On either end, parts one and four, it's either all fine or all bad. The in-between numbers, I use a n minus one rule. For example, for a three-part humeral fracture, three minus one equals two. So two fragments are displaced. It's a bit tedious, but maybe it'll help the listeners remember. I like that method. If I go over it in my mind a few times, I can see this being helpful. How would you treat a proximal humerus fracture? Treatment typically escalates with higher numbers in the near classification. If it is a one-part injury, a sling or coaptation splint with progressive range of motion, less than 14 days, is pretty typical. Early motion will likely be relaxed pendulum exercises of the shoulder in avoidance of elbow contracture. Active range of motion is initiated around six weeks. Percutaneous pinning may be considered with two-part fractures of the surgical neck. Open reduction, internal fixation, intramedullary nailing, and arthroplasty are considered with other two to four part fractures. Fantastic. What about nerve and vascular consideration with these fractures? The axillary nerve is most commonly affected, especially if the fracture is at the surgical neck. Do you know the least affected nerve from the brachial plexus? The median nerve is the least commonly affected. Exactly. As for the vascular structures, the humeral circumflex artery can be injured with an anatomic neck humeral fracture, which can lead to avascular necrosis. Before we go on, I would like for you to point out some important things for the audience listening to remember regarding humeral fractures in the pediatric population. Of course, the injuries sustained by the younger demographic tend to be stress injuries, specifically from overhand repetitive throwing motions. This would be including sports like baseball and softball. The torsional stress affects the proximal growth plate of the humerus in adolescence. On adolescent films, the lateral aspect of the physis may be widened. Let's move on to clavicle fractures. Sounds good. How would you classify a clavicular fracture? The clavicle is divided into three parts, medial, middle, and distal third. The middle third is the most common site of injury with approximately 80% of fractures, followed by the distal third at about 15%. The Ullman classification is based on this prevalence with Ullman group one being the middle third, Ullman group two, the lateral third, and Ullman group three, the middle third. There are several near subtypes of Ullman group two fractures based on derangement of the coracoclavicular ligaments, the conoid and trapezoid. I won't go into these details at this time, but it is a good reminder to consider fracture location in comparison to anatomical connections. Great job. What kind of imaging is useful for visualizing a clavicular fracture? An x-ray AP view is useful in visualizing the fracture and it can be helpful in assessing the previously noted AC and SC joints, which may have sustained ligamentous injury and thus visible movement out of alignment. 
Due to the proximity of the clavicle to other structures, there's always a risk of neurovascular injury with the brachial plexus and arterial and venous supply running underneath the bone. Evaluating the distal innervations and blood supply is important. Lastly, the clavicle sits superior to the lung, and therefore a pneumothorax is a serious complication that can occur, but the AP view will be helpful in visualizing all these elements for assessment. How can we manage an uncomplicated clavicular fracture that does not include neurovascular compromise or lung injury? That's a good question. A closed reduction of the fracture followed by using a sling on the affected arm is the standard approach. The sling can be worn for a few weeks where mobilization exercises can be introduced as tolerated and strengthening exercise can be incorporated by six weeks. On the other hand, significant displacement of the clavicular fracture or a medially displaced shoulder secondary to the fracture will need surgical intervention. Afterward, a mobilization and strengthening program can be introduced as well. Great explanations. Thank you for that. The last subject I'd like to cover with you while we still have some time is that of deltoid avulsions and strains. We will not do a case for this, but let's have a discussion about how this injury occurs with signs, symptoms, and treatment. I'd like to begin with the anatomy. The deltoid muscle originates at multiple sites, namely the distal clavicle, acromion, and the spine of the scapula. It inserts on the deltoid tuberosity of the humerus. That would explain how this unique muscle contributes to movement of the glenohumeral joint in so many directions, including flexion, extension, and abduction. You're absolutely right. The axillary nerve provides innervation from the spinal roots C5 and C6. Complete avulsion of the deltoid from the humerus is rare. When it does occur, it is most often associated with crush injuries or direct blows to the shoulder. Surgical attachment would then be necessary. How do shoulder or deltoid strains typically occur? The anterior deltoid may become injured in the acceleration phase of a throw, while the opposite posterior deltoid is typically strained during its contraction with the deceleration phase. Signs and symptoms would include swelling, tenderness to palpation, and decreased shoulder joint mobility. Although we haven't been able to cover everything pertinent to the shoulder, I feel we were able to discuss a fair amount of material. I think a pop quiz would be helpful testing our knowledge and adding to it as well. That sounds like a good idea. Let's begin with this question. Which nerve of the brachial plexus is most likely to be affected by a humeral fracture? Is it A, musculocutaneous, B, axillary, C, ulnar, D, median, or E, radial? That would be B, axillary nerve, especially with surgical neck fractures. Exactly. Humeral head avascular necrosis may result with an anatomic neck fracture secondary to what artery being injured? Humeral circumflex artery disruption is associated with avascular necrosis of the humeral head. You don't want to miss that one. Which muscles contribute to excessive lateral protraction with lateral scapular weaning? Is it A, latissimus dorsi and pectoralis major, B, pectoralis major minor and anterior deltoid, C, rhomboids and teres major, D, pectoralis major minor and serratus anterior? That would be D, pec major and minor and serratus anterior. What is the most common site for a humeral fracture? A, anatomical neck, B, greater tuberosity, C, lesser tuberosity, D, 
capitulum, E, surgical neck. That would be E, as the surgical neck of the humerus is most commonly injured. I hope that pop quiz helped reinforce some important aspects of the shoulder. Before we end this podcast, let's do a quick recap of the things that are important to remember. Here are some of those key points that I'd like for the audience to remember. One, scapular winging mainly involves the trapezius muscle via the cranial nerve 11 innervation and the serratus anterior muscle being innervated by the long thoracic nerve. A wall push-up test can help visualize the injury. Two, you can remember C567, raise your arms to heaven for the nerve roots of the long thoracic nerve. Three, anatomical neck fractures of the humerus can involve the circumflex humeral artery and cause avascular necrosis. Four, proximal humerus fracture classification has four parts with a part defined as greater than one centimeter displacement or 0.5 centimeters or five millimeters in displacement of the greater tuberosity or 45 degrees of angulation. The structures to remember are the greater and lesser tuberosity, humeral head, and humeral shaft. Five, stress fractures in adolescence often stem from repetitive arm throwing motions and chronic throwing can lead to proximal physis widening seen on radiography. Six, the clavicle is divided into three parts. The middle third is the most common site of injury. Remember to evaluate for conoid, trapezoid, and coracoacromial ligament disruption, as well as damage to the AC and SC joints. Also monitor for damage to posterior clavicular neurovascular structures or for a pneumothorax. In seven, deltoid avulsions are rare. Strains simply need ice and activity reduction in the acute setting with gradual strengthening and stretching thereafter. Thank you for reviewing these aspects of the shoulder. I hope this was helpful to our audience and guides their study. Thank you for having me here. And to everyone listening, good luck and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the AAP Board Review Series. Thanks again to Dr. Annie Seavey and Dr. Ben Washburn for reviewing this episode. If you thought this podcast was helpful, please share with others who may value the content. Don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date to the latest news and opportunities.